1: That is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem.
2: I speak tonight for the dignity of man.
0: The dream of the state of Israel has been around a long, long time. We're going to look at what the dream exactly was and what's going on now with the state of Israel. Our parents' generation had tremendous dreams, tremendous hopes, for the state of Israel. And I don't know, it's, it's a bit changed. A lot of people think these days America is deeply, deeply committed to the survival and the strength of the state of Israel expand as it does. Uh, and there's a lot of controversy about it. Is Israel as strong with the public opinion? Is it as strong in Congress as it has always been? Well, we're going to look at The Dream of Israel. Our guest today, I'm very pleased to say, is M.J. Rosenberg. Thanks for being with us, M.J. Oh, sure. Senior Foreign Policy Fellow at Media Matters Action Network, and previously, M.J. worked on Capitol Hill for various Democratic members of the House and Senate for 15 years. Uh, He was also a Clinton political appointee at U.S. Agency for International Development, and in the early 1980s, he was editor of APAC's weekly newsletter, Near East report. So he, uh, APAC, of course, is American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, very well known uh, in Washington these days. And uh, he was director of policy at Israel Policy Forum. Uh, he's a currently a commentator on Israel and the Middle East who draws on thirty-five years of experience as a congressional aide, State Department political appointee under President Clinton, four years at APAC. On and on, he knows his stuff. Well, thanks again for being with us, M.J. Rosenberg. Define what we're going to talk about first. What was our parents' generation's dream for the state of Israel?
1: After World War II and uh, 1948, when Israel was created, um, had this um, image of Israel as a, uh, a place where uh, Jews would be safe uh, from persecution, right. uh, you know, they had the Holocaust still in their minds. Sure. It just, you know, it just occurred within the you know previous decade or so. Um, they also, uh, you know, tended to support it as a as a socialist democracy. Right. The model of Israel in those days was the Kibbutz, and uh, if Israel had one thing that it, you know, that was identified with in the world was. The Kibbutz, which was a commune, or you know, a socialist, a socialist way of living where everybody shares and totally egalitarian,
0: and it take, it, it uses a village quite literally to raise a child.
1: Exactly, and um, it you know it was kind of um, even though for, even for you know for Jews who didn't didn't choose to live there, it just represented um, an ideal. Uh, an ideal, a a Jewish democracy, a place where Jews would be safe and a place that would be um, humane in general.
0: Mm -hmm. And live by Jewish ethics. That's that's one thing that's that's really important, I think, that defines the people Israel, which is distinct from the chunk of real estate called the State of Israel. But ethics are part of who we are. I am Jewish, rosenberg kind of sounds like a jewish name as well right <laughs> um but what what has changed tell us if you would about the influence of the settlers and religious fanatics in the past oh ten, fifteen 10 15 years or so have they always been there or is this new and significantly outside of our parents generations dream of the state of israel
1: well you know um David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel, and more than anyone else who can be credited with establishing the state, he, um, he was a, a socialist and an atheist, but he felt that um, there should be some place preserved within a Jewish state for the Jewish religion. Not a big place. In fact, the Israeli Declaration of Independence does not refer to God. It refers to a formula that Ben Gurion came up with: the rock of Israel, which could either be a rock, or um, it could be God, or whatever. In the early in the early days, they were very conscious of uh, you know not being a uh, not being a Jewish uh, not a Jewish state so much as a state for the Jews. Um. But then, what you know? What happened over? I guess the last twenty, thirty years is an absolute sky, you know, skyrocketing of the ultra religious population. Um, there are just about a million. You know, Israel is a country of seven million, and a million people are ultra religious. When you talk about our parents' generation, you it, it used to be in those days. You would say. American Jews were religious compared to the Israelis. The Israelis were notorious right. for going to the beach on Jewish holidays. I mean, rather than uh, you know praying and that kind of thing. So you have a million. So you have uh, you know a million uh, you know uh, ultra religious I- I- Israeli Jews, and then there was the there's the Russian in influx. Um, you know the uh, 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 starting about the, you know in the 1980s. Uh, the Soviets, under U.S. pressure, started allowing uh, the Jews, the oppressed Jews of the Soviet Union, to come to Israel. Well, that's another million now. Um, that's now you have two sevenths of two sevenths of 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 Israel. Uh, the, the reason I lump them together is they're overwhelmingly right wing. They have the Russian Jews vote for right wing parties and just hate the left in general. They identify even liberal, you know, liberal, uh, liberalism with the Soviet Union. So they're, you know, they're, they're not religious, but they're right-wing. The uh, ultra-Orthodox are, um, you know, are uh, uh, nationalist and, you know, nationalist and religious. These people, for, uh, then you have there's a, a one million Jews who came from the Middle Eastern countries. You know, uh, um, Morocco, oh, okay. Yemen, Algeria, those countries. Again, not from a liberal tradition. Uh-huh. The dream, and this is a, tricky to say it exactly, but the dream that our parents had was of the original Israel, which was a mostly European country that was um, built by and for uh, Jewish Europeans of a liberal tradition, you know, and but history, it it, it, it history changed all that because um, it turned out that the Jews from the uh, Middle Eastern countries they needed a place to go. The Russian Jews came. The ultra Orthodox had a super uh, uh, high um, a birth rate compared to um, the rest of the Israelis. And then you throw in what happened in 1967, which is the Six-Day War, which is when Israel won the, all the occupied, what we now call the occupied territories, you know, the West Bank, Gaza, Golan Heights, East Jerusalem, uh, these areas. And the settlers started moving in. Uh, there you know, and that's we're now we're now talking about seven hundred and eight hundred thousand of these settlers who are far to the right. if you add it all up the 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 Israel of the previous generation of what you call our parents' generation is really a minority israel now it's not like that at all that dream and I'm not saying that you know it was wrong that these old right. people got to you know come to Israel, but the israel you know um you remember the book Exodus, of course, which was the be- best propaganda book for Israel ever. Oh, amazing! The Israel of that book that was written in 1960 no longer exists. Oh, and in fact, to, to adds to the icing on the cake: the Kibbutz movement doesn't exist. There are hardly any Kibbutzim left. They've been turned. They've been uh, turned into just suburbs. So even this oh. is, and you have, and you have uh, governments in Israel that you know, did everything they could, like the right-wing governments under Netanyahu and Sharon and Menachem Begin, who hated the kibbutz and what it symbolized and did everything they could to help destroy that movement. So it's not the same country. It's a Jewish country, but it's not the country it was.
0: Wow. There's a lot there. We're talking on the Bert Cohen Show with M.J. Rosenberg, who uh, talks a lot uh, about uh, Israel and has been with APAC and uh, just uh, really knows his stuff and and I'm already learning a lot about it and certainly, uh, you know when I was growing up, uh, Israel was about the kibbutz it, it, and that's I went there in nineteen eighty one with my family and and that's what we wanted to see, and I was fascinated by that. It was such an interesting, hopeful uh, possibility. and as you say it was it was socialist. Uh, no question about that. And now to say that that, that the, the kibbutz no longer exists—that's right. that's a big, big change. Y- you you write, uh, M.J. That by now Herzl would be thinking about moving back to Europe. Tell us yeah, a, a little bit think... about who yeah. Herzl was and why would he now be thinking such a thing.
1: It, it was it, it, the idea of creating a Jewish state. You know, was uh, the political movement that created the Jewish state, Zionism. Was his idea and his dream, and he was totally secular. He was not religious at all. He did not envision a role for religion he, in the state. He favored, um, you know, the American way—the separation of church and state. And he was a very cosmopolitan European. And uh, this kind of new chauvinist Israel—that is it. He also Herzl so viewed Israel as something that it would. Bring peace to the Jewish people, right? Rather than it's, it, I think I mean no, I don't think I know. He thought that Israel would be the safest place for Jews in the world, right? And right now, it is anything but the safest place. And he also, I don't think he would have ever imagined an Israel that's you know, you know, has absolutely no regard for the Palestinians not the, the Palestinians who were displaced in 48 and the Palestinians who were displaced in 67, that treats them with contempt and yes. thinks that the best way to, to deal with this minority is to build a wall to keep them out. Oh, I know. This is antithetical to, like, uh, liberalism. And that's what Theodore. Herzl, you know, whether you like, you know, some people didn't like Theodore Herzl because he was totally not religious. But I like that. I like that idea that he wanted a secular state. He wouldn't have uh, thought that the answer to Israel's problems was building was building walls against the Palestinians and trying to convince the United States to bomb Iran. No. I mean, how far off could that all be from the dream?
0: Well, it certainly has come a long way, and you know, to to see this, uh, well, it's been called apartheid. You know, it's it's a strong word to use, and a lot of people really bristle at that the use of that word apartheid, of course, went with, you know, the South Africa uh, before Mandela came to power, where, you know, the minority of whites had absolute control and they were superior to the black uh, inhabitants of South Africa and just just ruled it. Is apartheid, is that too strong a word? Maybe it is.
1: I don't think um, within Israel itself, there is anything that resembles apartheid. That's good to know. I think it was in the you know the pre sixty seven borders in Israel itself, ah. where uh, it, um, Arabs, um, Israeli Arabs, Palestinians are citizens, They're, and with the rights of citizens, that is not apartheid. Um, obviously, in South Africa, um, the blacks had no rights at all, right. and the blacks were limited to living in you know these banter stands, these ghettos, and. That's not the case in that's not the case in Israel at all. It is apartheid on the other side of the sixty seven line. It's apartheid in the West Bank. It's a part because I mean the most fundamental way where you have Jewish colonies called settlements, which you know control the water, control the resources, control the land. The Arabs are just there to work for them right. to be exploited. Mm. Um and it, there, it's, there's so many symbols of it, you know, that in uh, the West Bank, there, the, the good roads are Jews-only roads. Right. I, I mean, this is like, I mean, the, the Palestinian roads are these, you know, awful, uh, you know, to get from one place to another takes forever. Plus, there's a million checkpoints mm. that the Israelis have set up to make it very hard for Palestinians to move from one part of the West Bank to the other, to go to school, to go to the doctor, to go anywhere. Um, whereas the Jewish settlers speed along on super expressways to their fabulous settlements which have which which really are fabulous. In mean, other the word settlements are kind of ridiculous. They're kind of a settlement like Beverly Hills' settlement. <laughs> I mean they're they're beautiful. They have their and they all you know, they all, you know, the settlements are loaded with swimming pools. The Palestinians are limited to how much water they can use a day for fundamental things like, you know, washing and uh. cooking whereas the settlements control, you know, they have all the water they want, and they use it for their pools and their luxurious way of life. It is, uh, I, I, I think, I don't know what the exact definition of apartheid is. I think it's basically a, a system where, where one group, because of issues of race and who they are, is discriminated against and, and all the benefits go to the other group and And with no attempt to change it, it's not like you know, we have in the United States where you know, for you know there was a long time a movement to try to change racism you know, and change that rate, that system sure. that we have, like we, we had kind of an American apartheid system called oh, Jim yes. Crow, absolutely. But, but the West Bank system is that's permanent. As long as the Israelis are there and control all that land and keep the Palestinians off in the corner working for them at terrible wages. It's an apartheid system, but not Israel itself. So what makes me optimistic and what makes a lot of people optimistic is is imagining an Israel without the cancer of the occupation. Cut out the occupation. The West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem should be a Palestinian state in which the Palestinians are in control of their own destiny. Israel still will have a large um, Palestinian minority, but it will be a Palestinian minority with rights, as they have now. Um, it's It's more than anything else. It's the occupation that's Israel's curse.
0: MJ, it must have been quite a process for you personally to go through, having worked uh, for APAC, the American-Israeli Public Affairs Committee, for a long time and, and you know, working on behalf of the State of Israel. May, I don't know if you can share how, what it may have been like to, to see that, you know, something had changed, that the dream had changed. What was it like for you coming to this change of heart?
1: Well, the, um, when I worked uh, I worked at APAC from '82 to '86, and I really liked the job. Um, I, I, I wouldn't have left but for the fact that I got a better job. Um, and even after I left, I continued helping APAC out with doing fundraising events, that kind of thing, as a just because I really believed in what their mission was, which was to support Israel. The, at that time. The Palestinians had not agreed to recognize Israel's right to exist right. at all, right. so it was easy for me to say, which I did say, "Well, there's no one for Israel to negotiate with. So if there's no one for them to negotiate with, what are they supposed to do? They can't just, you know, they've got to, you know, they need security arrangements. With if there's if they're going to give back the occupied territories, they need security <laughs> arrangements. All these kinds of things and but the first step is that they talk. Well, 1993, I'm already out of. Uh, I'm already out of um, APAC Seven years. Um, I'm invited to sit on the White House lawn to see uh, Yasser Arafat and Yitzhak Rabin uh-huh. shake hands. Uh-huh. I'm there with thousands of people, Jews and Arabs. Um, it was an amazing thing to see, and I thought that was going to be the end of the conflict. So at that point, I decided that, for me, this conflict is over. Yeah, Arafat got up there and said, you know, I recognize Israel. Uh, Rabin said, I recognize the PLO as a legitimate representative of the Palestinian people. They shook hands. Rabin subsequently Called um, Arapat his partner. They worked together. Initially, there was you know it, you know they the, um, Israel got out of some of the territory. Initially, terrorism exploded because Hamas was opposed mm-hmm. to this reconciliation. But within a few years, it ended completely with the Palestinians by 1999. So the the, the handshake was in 1993. Right. By 1999, 1999 was the safest year in Israel's history. No acts of violence in the, against against Jews at all. Interesting. I mean, each year it dropped So by the end, the Palestinian um, standard of living was going up. The violence was was licked, um, and so I was you know I was totally sold. This is the future, um, and then. Um, you know, uh, Rabin was assassinated by a right-wing Jew. Yes. Netanyahu takes over, and all of a sudden, Israel stops living up to its commitments to the Palestinians. I mean, commitments that were spelled out, like they would say, like, uh, Israel has to, there's an 11% per- withdrawal is from land supposed to happen on such and such a date. Israel wouldn't do it. And this, uh, this, um, Netanyahu... So either, uh, Netanyahu uh, and Barak, who Barak were, were the first two prime ministers to just uh say and, and Barak amazingly enough this was Netanyahu in his first time around. Barak was even worse. He was he was one of these ones. He was from the Labor Party and he had to show he was tough by giving nothing up to the Palestinians. And by 2000 the whole process collapsed. Um at that moment, um, because of what I knew about how the Israelis had torpedoed the process, I mean, it wasn't the way the propaganda put it out that the Palestinians started terrorism. It wasn't that wasn't is at all? I mean, the uh, what they call the Second Intifada began right. when Ariel Sharon, who was the leader of the op- of the right wing opposition, intentionally. Went up to the um, to the Temple Mount to this um, Arab uh, Muslim holy place. Brought two thousand cops, you know, and, and soldiers with him, and basically said, you know, uh, you know, we're, you know, we Jews are going to take everything. We're going to hold everything. And next thing you know, he was elected prime minister, and we all know what kind what kind of prime minister he was. It, with all those things going on, was a revolution for me. Because nice Jewish boy that I am, I always thought the Israelis and the Jews were right. Right. But then I came around to see, yeah, they're right on some things. But in terms of torpedoing, subverting the peace process that Bill Clinton, Yasser Arafat, and Yitzhak Rabin began, it was the Israelis who did that, not the Palestinians. And um, I stayed with the peace process. I didn't... At the, by that point, I was no longer... The way um, most pro-Israel people are in this country today are mm-hmm. lobby people is whatever the Israelis tell them, they switch sides. I wasn't prepared to switch sides. I, I, was, I go to Israel all the time. I knew exactly how Israel backed down from the peace process, and uh, so that's where I've stayed. Yeah, it's pretty, depre- it's pretty depressing. I, I'm, still, I'm glad there's a Jewish state. Um, but I wish, as you said, uh, talked about ethics. I wish it was an ethical Jewish state and it isn't.
0: Right. We're talking on the Bert Cohen show today with MJ Rosenberg, a commentator on Israel in the Middle East who draws on 35 years of experience in dealing with the, uh, with the subject. And I know, you know, among the, uh, American, well, the Jewish Americans, uh, you know, we've had exceptionally close ties for a long, long time that there've been sort of a you know, an understood, just absolute rock solid identification between being Jewish and supporting Israel against any and all critics which emerge you know with Israel's founding. But it seems to be it seems to be kind of of weakening. What's happening with the, uh, you know, you hear the term self-hating Jew being tossed around if a jewish person has anything in the least bit critical to say about what's become of the state of israel how you know how close how dependent has the state of israel been on uh, uh jewish americans and, and what do you see happening with with the jewish american community on israel i mean it's, it, my my sense is it's still mostly Non-critical of Israel, but but what's your sense of that, MJ?
1: Well, my sense is that it's uh, the old people um, are going to be are, are just as uncritical as ever, and their kids don't care about Israel at all. You know, I it, you know, I, I to me, there's like a great um, I don't know if it's a metaphor or whatever for how much it's changed. When I I got involved in with Israel in, when I was in college, which is back in the '60s, and I, my friends and I, we just really got into, you know, loving Israel, and sure. and I never, uh, that you know, a whole bunch of us uh, decided that we would go to Israel in the summer of 68. I also went in the summer of 69, the summer of 70, and the summer of 71. I mean, I've gone many times since then. Each time, and I'm not from a wealthy family, I paid my own way by working. And raising, you know, and making the money during the course of the school year, so I could go to Israel. You know how they get kids to go to Israel now? Yeah, they give them free trips. That's right. They have a birthright program. They cannot get Jewish kids to go to Israel unless they give them and this an absolute any Jewish kid, any Jewish kid, and only Jewish kids can say, "I want my birthright—the right to go to Israel for free." And they go and they come and they love it and everything. Fact of the matter is, if you give a college kid a free trip anywhere, you're gonna take it. Yeah, that's my so in other words, left to their own devices, young Jews don't really care other than Orthodox Jews, and that's less than ten percent, um care about Israel much at all. It's um it's I um you know, and I you know, and I um I can tell that from just our most of my friends, the friends I've had my whole life, are have always are like me. They're always right. involved with Israel. They've been to Israel many, many times. We know how to get around, you know, everywhere in the place. And none of us have kids who care about Israel. None of us. And why do you they're think not, they're not anti-Israel? Right. It's just not. It, it, you know, they, Jews tend to uh, Jewish Americans are liberals. Yes. And their children are liberal. We voted 80% for Barack Obama twice. Yay. Um, A chauvinist Israel, a very much one that, where everything is determined based on the accident of your birth, you know, your ethnicity, your race, your religion, is not going to appeal to young Jews. If the Israel that we talked about of the previous generation existed, you know, and the, Kibbutz, and the Kibbutz movement was strong, and Israel was a socialist democracy, and it wasn't always threatening to go to war with everybody else in the world. Right. It wouldn't appeal to kids. But right now, and I see for for the, probably forever, unless something dramatic changes, American Jewish kids are are not going to be interested in Israel because they prefer the American dream. Because I think they see the American dream which is a dream of or a, it, a dream not yet realized, but right. we're always moving closer to it. A dream where everybody gets, you know, you know, has a, a fair break a, in America. Which is more and more inclusiveness as more and more groups come under the tent. I mean, I watched the Grammy Awards the other night. Yes. Thirty-four same-sex couples got married on television on, you know, on the the biggest show of the the night. This is like 10 years ago. It would have been inconceivable. Uh. But in America, things keep moving to greater and greater inclusiveness and equality. And Israel goes the precise opposite direction. If you're Jewish and you want to get married in Israel, you have to prove what your birth lines are. Literally. I mean, they don't count converted Jews unless they were converted by an orthodox rabbi. Half these kids who take these birthright trips couldn't get married in Israel because they're not Jewish enough. That kind of... That's not going to appeal to uh, younger people. I some, I sometimes when I say appeal to younger people, I think I mean people under 60. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> I mean, you know, the the older... My gender I'm 66. I'm a 60s person. I'm a Woodstock person. When you're talking about... The uh, people who are sixty-five, being um, hippy dippies from the '60s, who smoke pot, who have gay friends, who are tolerant, who um, all these things, uh, who are left liberals or whatever, um, when that's the older generation, which we're, which I am part of now, as am I, is going to be counting on uh, right-wing conservatives. Well, it's... Um, there are none, I'm not in the Jewish community. There's always been the same 20% that vote's Republican, but that's about it. Uh, however, right now the lobby is still powerful because it has the money from the older generation. There's still a significant, you know, there's still and there are people in their 40s and 50s, and I suppose 30s too, who, who are just totally brainwashed into believing everything Netanyahu says. You know, the thing that really, show, to me, that is so striking about how ridiculous the Israel lobby is, that some of the same people who would think it's their absolute right, and it is, to say that Barack Obama is totally wrong about everything, or previously that George W. Bush is, was absolutely wrong about everything, thinks that they are duty-bound to support 100% of what the Israeli prime minister says. That's crazy. <laughs> I mean, they like a whole different standard. But younger people are not going to go for that. That is like uh, you know, that's 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 going to be gone very soon. Yeah. But it's not gone yet.
0: Well, I want to ask about that, and I—that's I, I, exactly my sense as well. And you and I are from a similar generation, the Woodstock generation. I'm a little bit younger, but but basically the same generation. Right. And Washington, you know, right now. I think the public image of Congress is not a good one, and largely because they seem to be beholden to powerful money interests. Period. They are owned, lock, stock, and barrel, by certain uh, powerful interests. I mean, there's you know jokes around that on their suits they should have uh, they should sew the, the the logos of the various corporations right. that that own them, and they're way out of touch with the average american i think in terms of what we want we the people want but they do the bidding of those that invest money in their campaigns i mean campaign finance reform is really corruption what about apac and its power in israel i mean you talked very clearly and you know i think quite convincingly about they're not the the apac the right wing is doesn't have uh, young Jewish Americans. It's just not there. But what about their hold, APAC's hold on Washington, and what about uh, changes? I mean, how can they be so powerful? How important is APAC and their incredible strength in Congress to the existence, to the continuation of a right-wing government in the state of Israel?
1: I think that um, if there was no APAC, the occupation would have ended. Decades ago. It would have ended probably mm-hmm. about the time that Rabin and Arafat shook hands during that process. APAC's AIPAC, money, I mean, it, now it's interesting. APAC doesn't give money directly, right. it does it through PACs, it does it by organizing individual donors, yes. but it gives millions and millions of dollars. Right. And there's nothing on the other side. You know, on most issues, uh, in I'm um, you know, uh, you know, as having someone who worked on in Congress for 20 years, I can tell you, most issues are decided based on who has the money. As you yeah. said, we uh. have a thoroughly corrupt and undemocratic system. Yeah, and APAC is part of it. APAC is to the Jews what the NRA is to gun owners in the sense that it's an extremist organization that does not represent what the actual constituents say. You know, every poll right, shows that right. most gun owners favor uh, regulation of, 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 of guns. Assault weapons. Weapons, yes. handguns, etc. Kind of, but not the National Rifle Association. Because the National Rifle Association is backed by the big money of the gun manufacturers. It's not representing individual gun owners. It's the exact same thing with APAC. It is not representing Jews. It is representing some very, very, very wealthy Jews. You know, people like um, Sheldon Adelson yes. and people like that. Yeah. You remember from the, you know, who is who is Romney's biggest backer yeah. and got um, uh, Hillary Clinton has Chaim Saban. He's her biggest backer. Uh, 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 th- you know, these are money people, and it's what really bothers me is that they. St- Speak in the name of Jews, right? And it really can give a bad, you know, bad vibes, you know, a bad impression to Americans to think that this, uh, you know, uh, this this really extreme lobby is speaking for all of us. It has a hundred thousand members, and of those hundred thousand members, only you know, only a few thousand are the ones that matter. The one that's the ones with the money. But to be fair to APAC it is no <clears throat> more corrupt than all the other special interest groups oh, that yeah. dominate everything in this country. Well, if- I mean, it really is. It's, it's. you know, I, yeah, I, it, it, I would say if, if someone said... That APAC was this is the symbol of what's wrong with America. I would say they've got problems Yeah. because they should look into all the other interest groups. This is a cor- totally corrupt system.
0: Right. The I mean, APAC does what it does. They they're very clear. They represent uh, you know Israel can do no wrong, and the various other lobbies, the Koch brothers, they represent them. It's it's the. A formerly democratic system that has been so corrupted by this money. You, you, you brought me to a couple of more questions, MJ. I mean, one, all right, APAC's been around a long time, tremendously powerful. They raise a ton of money. What about J Street? Are they a factor? Tell us a little bit about what J Street is. I know they've been trying to have a more moderate uh, uh, presence and, and a significant presence in Washington. What about J Street?
1: What? Well, J Street is you know it was you know created to be the alternative to APAC. to be the place for and it, to be the place for young Jews in particular to go right. where they can support um, Middle East peace support. There, I think I think their motto is something like supporting Israel by supporting peace. Something like they that. are the exact opposite of. AIPAC, but they're very, very strongly pro Israel. Right. They just think that Israel's survival depends on its achieving peace. They also don't put Israel's interests above that of the United States, which AIPAC does. Yeah. Um, however, they don't have any money. No. There are no millionaires, no millionaires and billionaires buying up congressmen in the name of J Street. Mm. So. You know, a J Street gets very excited when a member of Congress agrees to go to their dinner. Well, that's really very nice, but that's not gonna get you anything. Or a member of Congress signs one of their letters. You need what what it will take to defeat APAC. Well one, it'll take generational change, which is obvious and inexorable. That yeah. just will happen. Yeah. And it takes it will take almost outbidding APAC for these Congress. <laughs> Under our current system, you have to buy these guys. Yes. And APAC buys them. And it's like, uh, you know, I don't know if you noticed, in, in President Obama's State of the Union message, he didn't um, mention uh, the gun situation this year. Because it's pointless. Last year he mentioned it because of what happened in Connecticut with all those children. Yeah. This year he didn't even bother mentioning it because an ugly lobby Owns Congress. Well, APAC operates the exact same way, and uh, you know, if if there was one public policy wish we should all have for this country, it would be get private money out of campaigns. Amen. Every campaign should be paid for out of our tax dollars, and then we'd have a really different, really <laughs> different <laughs> politics and policies. And I also before some people are going uh, <coughs> to uh, uh, say that the uh, Christian right. Is a is a, also a big factor supporting uh, Israel. And if APAC didn't exist, it'd still be the Christian right. I don't want to preempt that question that mm. it comes into anybody's head. They don't matter the Christian right. They don't give money based on Israel. They just scream and yell. They're <laughs> the Christian the, the Christian right and the right wing in general. They are too busy hating uh, you know uh, minority groups, immigrants, and gays. Yeah for them to... Fo- their issue is not Israel. They just scream and yell about it. They don't give the money. You can scream and yell all you want in this country about anything, but if you don't write a check, you don't count.
0: A big check at that.
1: A big check, right.
0: <laughs> well, again, uh, you're listening to The Burt Cohen Show. Our guest today is MJ Rosenberg, commentator on Israel and the Middle East. Got a lot of experience uh, with the subject. And one thing that that's gotten me quite a bit is people around the world... It seems oftentimes. Be curious what, what your take on this is. Confusing the state of Israel with the people Israel. I mean, the people Israel are Jews spread across the world. Right. What What about the current right wing government of Israel and anti-Semitism?
1: Well, I you know I think that the uh, that Netanyahu and the Israeli government certainly. Don't help the image of Jews around the world. That, that to have that to have Benjamin Netanyahu's snarling face at the UN, basically speaking on behalf of all Jews, because he does. Ugh. You know, um,
0: doesn't speak for me.
1: Yeah, he doesn't. But you know, he thinks he does. And uh, what he was the last time he was here, he went on Meet the Press, and oh, I always forget the name of the that tall Jewish guy who's the host of Meet the Press. Uh. I can't. You know think. What I mean,
0: yeah, I do, but I can't think of it.
1: Okay, uh, he he, he's, and he said to him. He says, uh, "Mr. Prime Minister, as the leader of the Jewish people." <gasps> Whoa, really? Well, maybe he's oh, you know maybe goodness. he's your leader, but he is not the leader of the Jewish people. He's a leader of the political state of Israel. Um, Peter Beinart, who's oh, yes. the best, in my opinion, the best writer on all things relating to Israel and Jews. Said the uh, wrote a column the other day in Haaretz, the Israeli, the Israeli newspaper that was entitled, Netanyahu is not the leader of American Jews, Obama is, and it was really you know, and it, it just made the point where you know American Jews tend to be you know our liberals and our loyalties are to the United States, and it's very important. I get worried when I see. Uh, organizations like APAC making it appear that you know that American Jews have mixed loyalties because we don't. Oh, some of them do definitely. Sheldon, you know Sheldon Adelson, the yeah. uh, you know the big, big Romney Jewish guy. He said that he was ashamed that he ever served in the U.S. military yeah. during World War II and wishes he had served in the Israeli military. I mean, these people are out of this world. Whoa. I mean, but that's not. I mean, you know, I. I I, the good thing about it is that Jews live all over the United States. Yes. And fortunately, I don't think that um, anyone who lives next door to a Jew in Kansas City is going to think that Benjamin Netanyahu represents them. <laughs> I mean, I hope it's not. Like, uh, you know, the uh, Jewish organizations are so worried about assimilation. Well, too bad. We're assimilated. Yes. And if we're not, and in fact, that's why. Um, that's why our grandparents and great grandparents came here. <laughs> right. Was they not to give up being Jews, but to become assimilated into a larger culture that would accept them?
0: Absolutely. And,
1: and to reward this culture, to reward this country by making excessive demands of it, like APAC is right now with its uh, trying to uh, kill the uh, Obama's peace initiative with Iran. That's disgraceful. This is best country ever. For Jews in history, yes, and what we're and, and what APAC and their friends, their owned friends, you know, the people—they're not really their friends in Congress. The people they bought in Congress. <laughs> yes. What they're trying to do is get America into another war for Bibi Netanyahu. Nice, nice guys, that's really nice. Well, you don't speak for me, and you don't speak for anyone I know. And uh, why? But you know, but you know, as with everything else, they speak for the super rich, for the one percenters
0: and so many things do break out down to that it's th- that whole class thing i mean it's it's you know it's just face it it's it's for real and just i don't know i mean it's it's mystified me as to why netanyahu is so gung ho on war against iran D- can you explain it i don't get it i
1: mean yeah i don't think it has anything to do with iranian nuclear weapons because if it did he'd support what obama is doing because what obama is if this process succeeds uh Iran will never develop nuclear weapons. I don't think that's his issue. I think his issue is he wants Israel to maintain regional hegemony in the Middle East. He does not. The way it is now, Israel can do what it wants whenever it wants to. Uh, Who can stand up to Israel? Nobody. Not even the United States. A more powerful Iran, even a nuclear Iran, after all, Israel has two hundred nuclear weapons. Two hundred, you know, like How? Netanyahu considers that such a scandal. <laughs> really? um, uh, he, he he needs he has this view of Israel as you know a, a kind of a Sparta that has to uh, you know be militarily dominant over everyone, and uh, that's what it, you know that's what it is. I don't buy I don't buy the nuclear thing at all. Right. I think it's just. A Excuse, pretext. pretext. They're yeah. always it's it's like the Israelis are always finding these uh, ways to avoid peace and reconciliation. The Palestinians recognize them. The, you know they've got this Abbas in there who couldn't be more pro-Israeli if he was an Israeli citizen himself and they won't negotiate with him. They make all these demands. The Iranians are saying, uh, you know, they, they're dealing with President Obama, and they're, and they're saying that they, they, not only that they won't develop nuclear weapons, it's against their religion to, de- to develop nuclear yes. weapons. So why not go with that? Why not test them? What is this terrible... It's this, you know, ne- Israel under Netanyahu will, you know, never take yes for an answer. It's always... <laughs> l- a part of it is that I think these right-wing Jews fear that the only thing that holds the Jewish people together is fear. So they're always, you know, I don't know if you said the other day, Abe Foxman, the head of the Anti-Defamation League, went off on the whole thing about how anti-Semitic the United States is. What? Uh, Yeah, he wrote a thing about about that Jonathan Pollard thing and says he is now convinced that that's all about anti-Semitism. Um wow. and and, hmm. and then he goes on with the stuff about Israel. This is you know the usual criticism of Israel's is anti Semitic They call right. that. It's like they forgot what anti semitism is. And my father told me what anti semitism was growing up in you know in, in uh, you know in Pennsylvania in in nineteen twenties. When they, you know, when you had the Ku Klux Klan running around and every Jew, he, he used to tell me he played basketball when the Jews, people, you know, uh, were on the field, uh, you know, on the court. Everybody's screaming, you know, uh, you know, calling them kikes and that kind of thing. And when Jews couldn't, you know, live in wherever they wanted to live and they couldn't get jobs in law firms, that's anti-Semitism. Right. Get over it. It doesn't exist anymore in this country. Right. Whoever experiences it. So what they in, what they did was reinvent what anti-Semitism is. Eh. Anti-Semitism is being against the policies of Israel, and in the name oh. of that, nice. they make alliances with the Christian right, which is my, in my opinion, is riddled with the old-fashioned kind of anti-Semitism. <laughs> it's become like a. It's everything is a political game for these people. I mean, they're they're. They're just bad people. And the, one, another thing that sustains these these organizations, you know, like AIPAC and all this, the amazing salaries these people get to combat anti-Semitism. You know, the head of the Anti-Defamation League and the head of the American Jewish Committee and the head of AIPAC, they all make $500,000 a year right. have multi-million dollar packages. I mean, it's a racket. And what will they do if, we are able to achieve peace in the Middle East and peace with Iran. The Iraq, it disappeared.
0: Ah, they'd be out of business.
1: Yeah. Interesting point. I mean, you know, I remember when I, you know, the day, I mentioned the day of the, uh, the Oslo signing at the White House lawn. When I got dressed to go down there, my wife said, you know, what are you going to be cheering for? You're going to be out of, out of, out of a <laughs> business because your whole life has been working for peace. And now there's going to be peace.
0: Uh-oh,
1: I said, "Yeah, well, isn't it great?" Yeah, I don't think that's the way saw
0: it. <laughs> well, as as you have said, MJ, and you know, we're talking about the dream of Israel. Is it dying? It's a sad feeling. It's, a, I mean, our parents had a wonderful dream of yeah. Israel, and and you said, "quote We know Israel is committing suicide." Yeah, well, can there still be a dream? Can the the Palestinian dream and the Zionist dream? coexist. Is a two-state solution still possible? Can there be a Palestinian state alongside a Jewish state, or is it now too late? Is, is...
1: I, I don't think it's too late, and I think, and this may seem naive considering how uh, pessimistic I sounded all through this conversation, I honestly believe that if the United States draws up a plan, which John Kerry, according to Tom Friedman, supposedly John Kerry is doing and says to the two sides this is the plan two states built on the 67 you know mm-hmm. seven lines with the United States providing security guarantees and that which has always been in every proposed peace agreement right. and said take it take it or we're going to reduce aid they take it I think that all it takes is the United States saying, you know, just do this. We will not tolerate this anymore. Israel, if you want us to be your one friend in the world, the one guarantee that there will always be a Jewish state is U.S. friendship and that they're essentially our nuclear umbrella. If you want that to continue, and it has to continue, then you have to end this occupation. I think if you put that to the Israeli people, they would overwhelmingly ratify it. And oh. if you put it to Netanyahu, he'd have no choice but to accept it. I think it's going to happen. I don't think it's too late for the two states. But
0: what about Congress? I mean, w- would they accept that? I don't. I can't imagine they would go along no, with. No,
1: because no, because it, it, if, if if Netanyahu negotiates it, then APAC right. goes along with it too, and then they don't have the money up against. You know, then no one's holding the money trigger to the to Congress's head. Congress, it's only the only way that APAC you know, the plays its its role is when the, you know is when they will they will support they will support anything a right wing government of Israel does. Right. Um, so I mean that's why we often talk about that Nixon going to China thing. We always say only a Nixon could get away with it. Well, maybe only a Netanyahu could. the The, the difference is, of course, is that Nixon really wanted to go to China, and Netanyahu doesn't really want peace. But we could dictate it. We are still the only superpower in the world. We keep Israel alive with $3 billion in aid. We vote with them at the UN. I mean, like, like, we're, like we're their robots, practically. <laughs> I mean, really, every international relationship should be a two-way street. Yeah, And unfortunately, with Israel, they've gotten used to it being a one-way street.
0: Well, we'll see if uh, if Kerry can uh, can pull that off. So it's- I'm
1: impressed with him. I'm, imp- I mean, I was never a big Kerry fan, but I'm definitely impressed with him so far.
0: Well, that's that's very good to hear that there is some degree of hope. And
1: oh, and I'm impressed with with Obama. When Obama stood up at the State of the Union, he made only one veto threat, and he said, "If you send me that san- the APAC sanctions, but he didn't say APAC. If you send me that sanctions bill, I will veto it." Because it is not in our national interest. Three Democrats have already dropped off co-sponsoring that APAC bill. The AIPAC, that, what is that, that bill? bill is probably dead now.
0: And what is, it is that bill exactly? Really
1: stood up to them. So I'm, I, I'm not pessimistic. A president with the will could achieve it, and maybe a second term Obama. Who realizes that, you know, it's legacy time yes. and there's not much he can do on domestic stuff because the Republicans don't let him, uh. and he has more latitude as any president does on foreign policy, uh, you know, maybe he can put this over. Well, ho- we can hope that anyway.
0: Well, what is, uh, just briefly, what is that uh, AIPAC uh, sanctions deal that he said he'd veto?
1: The, it's uh, AIPAC has a bill which basically uh, says that before that that the Iranians would basically have to dismantle all their nuclear stuff, all their civilian stuff. They have to do everything first, and then maybe we'll lift sanctions. In other words, they wouldn't take just the very possibility. I mean, Obama's deal that he reached with them is as they reduce their nuclear capability, we reduce sanctions step by step. AIPAC says we uh, that Israel should, you know, have what it wants, what Netanyahu's t- yes. demands are, all up front, and then maybe we'll lift sanctions. And then maybe. No country in the world would accept that, and that's why AIPAC crafted the bill to kill the negotiations. Uh-huh. But Obama's standing up to them. <laughs> so miracles happen.
0: It could happen. Maybe there'll be a, a Palestinian dream and a israeli dream and the, the two-state could happen boy it's sure taken a lot longer than i ever thought it would yeah very very interesting you have a blog mj is your blog and you write a weekly column for the huffington post if people want to follow what you're doing very very uh, informative here thank you so much for being with us MJ okay Rosenberg.
1: sure thanks for, yeah, thanks for calling me
0: all right thank you and this is a song about palestine Email me, Bert at BertCohen.com. Thanks for listening.
2: First thing the occupation started, Palestine was left broken hearted. Hands down, you won't believe the way they laid their wrath on her. Six feet under is where they left us. So bad the way that they were killing us. Too bad we're not afraid to die when bombs fall from the sky. Can't explain. Thought that we were gonna lose so bad. They're all insane. There's got to be a